thanks for, thanks for coming. I'd like to start by praying and asking God to make this a significant time for you and me and guide me in what I should say. Father in heaven, I ask that you would come and fill us with your spirit of wisdom and truth and love and power. I pray that you would cause me to say the things that would be most specifically helpful for those who've gathered here. I pray that you would stir us up to love and to good works. I pray that you'd kindle affections for you in our heart and give us a devotion to your people and to those who are outside the sheepfold and yet to be gathered in. So Lord, come and let your presence and your anointing rest upon this time, I ask. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Well, I'm going to ramble on for a little bit here just about things that I jotted down here on my piece of paper, but really would like to have your questions and your feedback and so I know whether I'm talking about the things that are of most uh, significance to you. Um, the topic has to do with the, the pastorate and uh, world evangelization. And uh, let me start by telling you the reaction of the church when I began to talk more about world missions back in 1983, 84, 85, and so on. Um, there began to be this uh, backlash the church has about a thousand people in it. Backlash from uh, people who have a great burden for urban ministries in Minneapolis, for example, or who are strongly involved in the pro-life movement, for example, or involved in uh, issues about housing in Minneapolis or counseling in Minneapolis. In other words, all the what what I would call domestic ministries and there are as many as there are gifts and needs. And those people began to say things like, are we second-class citizens around here? So if, if you start riding any horse in your ministry, those who aren't on the horse with you will start to ask those kinds of questions. It doesn't have to be just missions. You know, you might get into a big counseling thing, or you might get into a big Bible study thing, or a discipleship thing, or whatever. And those who aren't quite with you will say, uh, do we count? You know, is there a place for us? Does, does everybody have to have your first burner issue? Now, the uh, re reflection that I gave to that resulted in a, an, a little article in Journal of Frontier Missions and proved to be extremely helpful for our people. So let me just tell you what it, what it was. Um, if you list off all the possible domestic ministries that your church is involved in, it could be anything from kids' clubs to Sunday school to music ministries to park ministries to working with alcoholics to working with uh, crisis pregnancy, just, just a whole range of needs that Christ has something to say about and grace to minister to. And you list all that off, uh, and you ask, now how does all that here in Minneapolis or in Philadelphia, relate to uh, Papua New Guinea or unreached peoples in Afghanistan 
or China or Thailand or wherever? The answers are, should we, oh, I was going to say, should we shut the door and it's shut? There's <laughs> a big hole in the door at the bottom. Um, if you ask how they relate, the answers are several. One is, out of these domestic ministries flow uh, training for people who will go overseas to unreached peoples. Out of these domestic ministries, especially if you include all of your people's jobs as ministry. And I think you should teach people to view lawyer and doctor and teacher and bricklayer and fireman as ministry. Out of that flows money. They make their money doing this stuff, which is the way that missionaries can be sent. I had one other written down. What was that? Uh, credibility. Ralph Winter stood in my kitchen few years ago and looked out the window at Minneapolis and we were talking about these things and about my life and about our church and about how to be engaged most helpfully in finishing the Great Commission. And he said, you know, John, maybe the most important thing you could do for missions is to remake Minneapolis. Now, that's typical Ralph Winter overstatement. Um, but what he meant was it's very hard to export a religion from a depraved culture. I mean, you don't, you don't go to an average African tribe and tell them anything about solid family life in America. And we don't have anything to say to a lot of the cultures of the world who are doing it a lot better than we are, and we're supposedly the Christian nation. So the point is, there's got to be some credibility if you're going to export anything out of this country, including Christianity. And so he said, maybe you should just uh, devote yourself to remaking Minneapolis for the sake of the nations. So credibility, financial support, and training would be three ways that what's happening in America in domestic ministries can bear fruit for the unreached peoples. Now, if I stopped there, that would only be half the answer, and it wouldn't be the most helpful half. What was the most helpful half was to recognize that any person who senses the call of God to go from an American setting to an unreached people group, whatever country, or either to an unreached people group in America, geography doesn't count, it's unreached peoples that counts. If anybody decides to do that, what they are doing is exporting domestic ministries. Now that was the insight that brought the two together. So you got these, these uh, people out here who are passionately involved in pro-life or who are passionately involved in one-on-one -on -one discipleship to bring people to maturity in faith and they're feeling a little bit squeamish about all this emphasis on world evangelization. And I want to say now to them, and I do say to them, look, if you care about abortion <clears throat> or you care about what becomes of old people, or you care about one-on-one uh, -on -one discipleship to bring people to maturity, then for you to be authentic, you've got to care about that also where the preconditions for it don't even yet exist. You're acting out of 
a Christian foundation that has been built up in this area for a couple hundred years, and you have a tremendous advantage. If you really care about abortion, what about abortion in Thailand? What about abortion in China? What about abortion in Uganda? If you care about AIDS in Minneapolis, we have several guys with AIDS at our church and a significant ministry to people with a homosexual orientation. If you, and we have people pouring their lives into that ministry. What about AIDS in Uganda, where we're going to lose half the population probably in the next seven years? And that means that if a, if, a, if a people group exists somewhere that don't even have the Christian foundations out of which can grow domestic ministries, then you people who love domestic ministries will be so glad when some missionary up and leaves to go to that group and starts preaching the gospel so that the, the presuppositions can be put in place out of which then can grow domestic ministries. And when, when people began to realize that foreign missions is the exporting of domestic ministries, it really makes domestic ministries the goal of everything. <laughs> and so the people don't feel as threatened anymore. That uh, if what you really think counts is demonstrating the justice of Jesus over against ugly structures in society, say. That's one kind of person, you know. The justice of Jesus brought to bear upon evil structures in society. I said, okay, fine. What about all the structures in all the cultures over there where they hadn't even heard of Jesus who could bring anything to bear on anything? Does it matter there? And if so, then don't feel like there's a competition here between that issue and the issue of taking the foundation of that issue, namely the gospel and scriptures, to another place. So that, that conception... Foreign missions is the exporting of domestic ministries has, done, has gone a long way to alleviating the tension between the camps, uh, those who are more immediately on the front lines of missions at Bethlehem and those who are pouring their lives into the domestic ministries at Bethlehem. You want to raise any question or comment about that particular observation? You will run in... In the pastorate, you will run into that tension no matter what your particular emphasis is. You know? Right. Did I mention that? I th maybe I didn't, but I've got that written down here. Was that one of my three? Okay. That, that, that exactly. When we talk about small groups, for example, one of our big issues about small groups is if, if, you, can't, if you can't plant a small group, you can't be a missionary. <laughs> I mean, it's just if you can't plant a small group, i.e. a possible church, then where are you, what are you going to go do anywhere else? So small groups. If you can't do evangelism in the urban center of Minneapolis where our church is, what are you going to do in Concon, New Guinea? What, what, uh, Guinea. So uh, exactly. Exactly. The, we view, this is very interesting, Tom Steller that I mentioned this morning, his job description is, I mean his name is, title, Associate Pastor for Missions and Leadership Development. And Tom is probably the most creative and active person in putting together things that bless our people where they are. 
nurture programs and small group programs and uh, a district eldership. Tom's always dreaming this way as a missions, a missions uh, leader in the church. And people always kind of scratch their head, what is Tom? What does he do? And why is he always thinking about these kinds of things when he's a missions guy? And, and you gave the answer, namely that Tom just says if, if these 50 or 60 mission candidates that he works with right now at our church in the nurture program who are aiming for vocational missions, if they can't study the Bible and teach the Bible and do small groups and do evangelism and, and shepherd the flock, and if they're not doing all that, what in the world are they going to export? So it becomes the domestic, domestic ministries are the training ground for, for uh, missions as well. Any other observations or questions? Maybe they'll come to your mind as we go. How do you find uh, these people who are called to domestic missions? Um, do at a certain point, do they advance to a level where they feel that they need to go out of the country? Okay, the question is, I'm going to repeat them for the tape here if I remember to. Uh, do people who are called to domestic ministries uh, come to a point, I'm not going to say reach a level, <laughs> because that, put, that immediately does what I don't want to do, uh, come to a point where they sense God's call, and the answer is some do and some don't, and, and I don't try to put a value judgment on whether they are continuing. You see, here's, a way to, here's another angle on it. Minneapolis was once upon a time a mission field that somebody came to, and uh, right now, we are simply continuing the, uh, the domestic ministries that were planted in Minneapolis by some Jesuit 150 years ago, probably. So, in a sense, they, they are on the mission field that's 150 years old. It's not a mission field anymore because it's well-reached. So, I, I'm always preaching and holding up uh, and, and this is another point now, kind of shifting. This is a good transition for me onto another point of what a pastor does to kindle mission zeal. I'm always holding out radical challenges to people because I think most Americans are just bored stiff with making money. Yuck. What a way to spend your life. Get up in the morning, work your tail off for 10 hours, come home, watch TV, dink around in the garage, go to bed, get up, go to work, make a lot of money, come home, watch TV, dink around, get up. I mean, what a life. So I create a lot of dissonance in my people by saying, really? You guys are happy? You know, not being pastors <laughs> or missionaries? Or, and I get into trouble doing that, but I, I think it's worth the trouble just because J. Campbell White, back in the early 20th century, said most men, and I think you could say it of men and women, most men are dissatisfied with, their, with the output of their lives. When they slow down long enough to catch their breath and take a little break and walk in the woods and think about the meaning of the last five years, they say, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Just go to work, have a nice house, and live in the suburbs, and have a boat. And in Minnesota, you have the cabin at the lake. The lake. As though there was one lake in Minneapolis, I mean, in, in Minnesota. So 
So they all have these cabins, and they all have these uh, lakes, and they all have these boats, and, and they go there, and some come back for church, and some don't. And that's it. When you come to die, that life will be no help for your conscience at all. And no, so I'm always throwing out, what do you want to do with your life? Come on, you 45-year-old businessman. Come on, what do you want to do with your life when you grow up? <laughs> so I am pushing, I push the domestic ministries real, real hard. And my gut reason for doing that is the old, the old analogy of if you see a log and ten men carrying it and nine are at one end and one are at the other, where are you going to grab on? Now, that's not an answer. That's not a full, and you've got to leave room for the sovereignty of God to tell you, grab on the nine-person end because they're nine weak men and he's worth ten at the other end. God might say that. But in general, when you look at Nigeria and you see these big holes, and Nigeria is a lot better off good night than Guinea, which just opened up recently and uh, don't have anything like Nigeria does. And... Uh, Yesterday's Operation World was what country? All right, we got people doing it. Yes. It was Albanian before that Afghanistan. I don't know what it is today because I didn't bring it with me. What is it? Who's after Albania? There's only one day on Albania. What? Maybe Algeria. Okay, maybe. At any rate, Albania, Afghanistan, you're talking about wastelands of incredible proportions spiritually. And uh, here we are. There are more churches in the Twin Cities than there are missionaries to 1.2 billion Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus. You talk about disproportion. I mean, what? so every time Missions Week rolls around at Bethlehem, I'm on my face saying, Lord, how can I stay? How can I stay? What am I doing? Why am I here? I want among 1,000 churches in these twin cities. That's, that's even, that doesn't count the Catholics. Um, and my answer is, so far, you will do more good mobilizing like you're doing than if you went to Guinea yourself and worked in Sigeti with the Jaegers. So far, that answer has sufficed and kind of kept the lid on my dissatisfaction as I look around this saturated place. So my answer to your question is uh, many of those people uh, f uh, find the roots of their lives shaken. I describe my ministry at Missions Week and other times as I want to just take the trunk of your life, the trunk of your tree with its roots nicely planted at 3 a.m. and in your neighborhood and in your school and in your small groups and I'm just going <laughs> to... And then if the Lord wants to pluck it up and plant it somewhere else, he can. But my, my ministry is to loosen the roots of people. And I'm not talking seminary students and high school students and university students who have their whole life before them and they don't know what they want to do anyway. I'm talking about people in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are sunk real deep, shaken, especially, this gets me on another hobby horse now, I'll just let the spirit flow here, uh, especially retired people. I hate the word retirement. There is no retirement in the Bible at all. Paul never retired. Peter never retired. 
the most deplorable thought in my mind is to reach 65 and to spend 20 years getting, to meet Je- getting ready to meet Jesus on the golf course. <laughs> Just think of it. 20 years of health wasted in leisure, in big expensive condo places where they have all kinds of things that people over 60 are supposed to like to do. Thank God for the people in my church who are retired, who, who every winter, and this is what you want to do in the winter in Minneapolis, leave town and go to Texas to work with HCJB or fly over to uh, Liberia and help rebuild or go somewhere. Their whole, their whole mindset is, I'm free. I'm free. I don't have to make money anymore. I can minister instead of I'm free to vegetate. So I, just, I hope you, you, need, you need to just build, start right from the beginning and, ten, and take 5, 10, 15, 20 years in your ministry to, to uh, knock retirement right out of your people's minds. To build a mindset in that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm an alien and an exile here. The forces of this world are warring like crazy against this church and these people, and I'm going to fight this thing with all my might. I've got some gifts, and I'm going to use retirement to, well, the old people in my church, they get this thing called retire. You put retreads on your tire. They retire themselves when they retire, and they start off in a new, a new road. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I, I hope you forgive my ignorance, but I, I'm not clear on your, your mission background. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you could explain then how that affects your credibility at you know, the congregation. You mean my involvement in missions? Is that, or when you say mission background? Okay, I've only been overseas three times, uh, and that's only been to visit missionaries and been to conferences. So I've never been a missionary in the sense of crossing a culture and planting a church in an unreached people. So if it takes that to be credible, I have none. I'm just saying, I'm not basing your credibility on that. Right. I'm saying how the congregation might react to that. Right. Well, um, as far as I can tell, the, uh, the Lord has worked in a lot of people at Bethlehem to kindle a passion for missions through me, who's never been one, and uh, have no intention right now of being one, unless when I get on my face and say to God one of these years, why am I here? And he says, you're not anymore. You're out of here. You've done the work, now you go do it in Nigeria or or somewhere else, which is entirely possible to me. I, w- I want to be like, uh, uh, oh, who is, who is the missionary to the Muslims in the 1100s? Help me. Um, uh, what? No. Oh, shoot. At any rate, he, got, he, came, he, was, he, he was ministry in northern Africa to, to Muslims. He came back, he got old in 83. He said, why am I here? If I'm going to die, why not die as a martyr? (laughs) And so he goes back, and he stands up in the city, and he starts preaching Jesus, and they kill him. Uh, That name will come to me before we're... Yes, Raymond Lull. 
not, that's, that's the way I feel. Like when, when, I'm too, when I'm too old to do much good in, you know, yuppie, fast-paced America, I want to just go to a totally unreached people where they're so hostile, no young people will go, because i got nothing to lose. <laughs> nothing to lose whatsoever. I'm going to die in four or five years of old age and just you know, kind of walk in there and say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and just die. I mean, <laughs> why, why would you want to? I mean, I've watched so many old people die in old folks' homes, and it's horrible. It's horrible what happens to people in old folks' homes. Just sit there and <laughs> like this, and just go get killed, and you won't have to be that way at all. And I, I mean, Raymond Lowe really did that. And I, I think, um, so maybe my credibility will jump way up at the end of my life. And then <laughs> somebody will write a book someday about the last little chapter of my life. And like David Brainerd, just a little teeny piece of his life. And he's changed the world because Jonathan Edwards, I know you were trying to, to call that into question. Um, but that was only sound like half your question. Was that all of it? Okay. So I've been to, you know, visit missionaries in Africa. I went to Singapore. I went to Manila. And I think that's about it. Uh, I have a question. How do you offer that uh, type of radical challenge without ending up at the church of people who feel that 40 hours is only to do all of this to God? Uh, I think there's a real danger that the people aren't going to accept that challenge. Right. And in our culture, there are other people who think that uh, God is on Sunday or on Tuesday or on missionary, but what I do in my business is irrelevant. Right. Uh, I, may not do, I may not solve that problem very well since I, I, I choose to err on the side of, of, of letting them feel that way. But the way I try to keep them from feeling that way is with a radical God-centeredness in all of life. All of life. So that I wrote a little article for our newsletter, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. And my son went to a little school for a summer that I thought was going to be a good Christian school, took Latin so he could get up to speed last summer in the in seventh grade, eighth grade, and, uh, uh, and they never mentioned Jesus, and they never prayed in class, and they never related Latin to church history, and, and at the end he said, Daddy, I don't want to go to this school because it was no difference from Roosevelt High or any other place downtown. And I said, no difference at all? He said, well, I don't think so. I, there was, he was, God was never mentioned. So I called the teacher, and I said, no, my, I don't, children can be really uh, mistaken, but he said that there really wasn't any difference between your class in Latin and what he would get at a secular school. And this is supposed to be a Christian school, and I want my boy to learn that God relates to all of life and get a Christian worldview and... And he said, well, I'd just defy anybody to, to say that Latin or algebra can be made Christian. And, and I told my wife that. He said, nobody should say to John Piper, I defy. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat down at my computer, and, and I wrote a three-page letter on how, if I were teaching Latin, I would make it God-centered. I could have done the same thing for algebra, and I don't know anything about algebra. You don't have to know much to know how God relates to anything if he's God. And so I sent this to him and called him again, and then I talked to the principal, and they sent the letter to the big central headquarters in Indiana, and the president called me from Indiana, and we got this discussion that's still going on now about how to make Latin Christian, 
how to teach Latin in a God-centered way. So when I preach, I do that with, with bricklaying and nursing and teaching and lawyering so that my people, at, at least occasionally, are hearing me say, uh, if you're a, a grade school teacher, you better teach spelling to the glory of God. And I give, I give long, I, I, this is one I remember because I developed this spelling thing because I've got a son, a couple of them, I've got four sons, but two of them are sort of anti-spelling. And, <laughs> and I say, if you, they say things like, so why should I want to spell like everybody else? <laughs> well now, right there at that point, if you're a teacher, the ways divide. There are, is there a Christian answer to that question? There's a secular answer to that question. The secular answer is, if you don't spell the way everybody else spells, you won't get a good job, and you won't make enough money, and you won't be happy. That'd be one answer. It's true. It's just godless. The Christian answer would say, I mean, there are a lot of ways the Christian could respond. The person could respond, um, but if you don't spell the way others spell, then you're powers of communication with clarity and with understanding and with acceptance are going to be hurt. And then if the person says, well, so what? But you do have something to communicate, something of immense importance. Your whole life is communication from God to others. You are a broker of truth and grace. If you jeopardize that with crummy spelling, you dishonor God and so that's just a teeny little illustration of how I would say to a teacher, get God into your teaching. So I think, I think my people believe that there is a tremendous need in American culture for radically God-centered people in every layer of society and every one of the little pieces of professional life. Yeah. The question is, what, have, what about effects on our church, missions, mindset, and so on? Uh, well, there are a couple of guys here, David and Wilford, who've been at Bethlehem, who could perhaps answer from their perspective better than, than I could, who were there for a while. Um, here's a little most recent piece. Last missions week, end of October, when uh, Operation World had just come out, I held it up. Somebody got it? Got it in the room here? Why don't you hold it up back there so we can see what... See, that, that book right there, okay, we were selling them for, I think, five or four dollars. I mean, it's incredible. If you buy enough of those things, how cheap you can get them. And uh, I said to the staff, let's order 300 copies. And, and the business administrator said, no way, no way. We'll start with 150. I said, Dan, I'm sure we can get rid of more than 150. So I forget what we compromised at. So I, I stood up and I said, no, uh, this is new, and uh, I just think it ought to be in every home. They just vanished. And uh, we thought we'd missed it. We had one more Sunday to go, and uh, there's a man in the city who had 2,000 of them. He just had so much faith that he bought 2,000 copies, had them in his house. <laughs> so we, we got 400 more from him. And we got rid of them. The total was about 450. Now that's about how many family units there are. Uh, a little more than that. But one response has been that 
just by my saying, I think this should be in your house, and maybe we should pray through it as a church, uh, I would say eight years ago we would have sold a dozen, 20, 30. Everybody bought one. And uh, so when prayer week rolled around, the first week in January, I said, I think God's doing something at Bethlehem this year, and I think he's calling us to pray through the world in 1994, so let's do it together. You've all got these books at home for some reason now. Let's just, with our children, start praying through. So that's one thing. Another thing is we've grown tremendously in our prayer life. Nothing will grow your people up in prayer like a world vision. I mean, every pastor that struggles with prayer meeting and so on struggles with little bitty, teensy-weensy, banal prayers. Wesley Duell told a story recently. You know Wesley Duell touched the world through prayer and heart ablaze for God and a whole slew of books on prayer and missions. And he was talking about, he pictures God on a throne and angels, huge angels the size of the Sears Tower in Chicago flying in from, from the east and flying in from South America and giving reports. And all of a sudden he hears, God, please Help us get enough money for our swimming pool. <laughs> we can't finish the swimming pool. And God said, what was that? <laughs> what was that? It's got this big... It's okay to pray, I suppose, that your swimming pool could be finished. I don't know. But uh, that's the level at which a lot of church prayer life happens. And if you want to get people praying, hallowed be thy name in all the world. Thy kingdom come in all the nations. Let your will be done in Afghanistan the way the angels do it in heaven. You've got to get them global-minded. So prayers are transformed. Another thing is once you get the world in view, you realize that two-thirds of the world regard the poorest person in America as rich. I mean, 800 million people are on the brink of starvation. They live subsistence hand to mouth. The only way to get your people aware of that is missions. To talk about the world and the needs of the world. And the effect that has then is to create a wartime lifestyle. That's what we call it. A wartime lifestyle. Where you say, look, really. I mean, Ralph Winter, you know, his overstatement. He walked into a student's room in a, in a, uh, in a dormitory and uh, the student welcomed him and they're going to have a conversation. He looked in the closet and he saw two pairs of shoes and he said, oh, I thought you said you lived here by yourself. <laughs> he said, well, I do. He said, oh, I just saw two pairs of shoes. And <laughs> Let him who has two coats give to him who has none. That's John the Baptist. That's pre-grace, if you have the wrong theology. <laughs> um, because people turn on the news, they find out what happens 7,000 miles away and what happens 10,000 miles away, all within a half hour of watching a news broadcast. You are inundated with so much communication and what's going on here and there. And when you decide you want to pray for something, eventually you don't know what to pray for. And then some people, they just, just 
in time they just throw up their hands because yeah. they don't have any focus in terms of, yeah. of what they do. Now, do you orchestrate like um, the prayer life in, in your congregation for something here this week and then something here this week, or is it like, well, we're going to pray for this for a whole month? So that this way you mm -hmm. have everybody mm -hmm. praying for maybe the same area, okay. and people know that. You know, what am I going to leave out? And they get frustrated, right. but now they have a, a direction to go with the prayer life. The question for the tape is, if people are inundated from the media with crises all over the world, or even just from the Christian media of needs all over the world, do they come to throw up their hands about the hopelessness of praying for everything, and how do you as a pastor guide them in, in praying? And it's really, it's going to be both and. It's going to be structured so that they don't feel like they're drowning in a sea of, of possibilities, but also freedom, because the Holy Spirit knows a lot better than I do what should be prayed for this week. And so um, if something happens like a crisis with the uh, earthquake in Southern California, I'm part of a little denomination called the Baptist General Conference, and the, and the flags go up and the little red cards come, and, and we can say this morning, let's focus on that. Uh, Operation World is giving us some focus for praying systematically through the world, teaching people to pray as they read the newspaper. Just pray. But really, I'm, I'm a lot more, I'm less worried about people drowning in that than I am in just teaching them to, to act on the impulse. If a gracious impulse rises in your heart for something you're reading in the newspaper, like we heard Bosnia prayed for this morning, if a gracious impulse rises, act. Don't say, yeah, but is that the most important thing to pray for right now? There might be a more important thing. You know, you, you'll never move. You'll never get off a dime in your life if you, if you second-guess every impulse that you get and ask, yeah, but Lord, if I go to visit that person, there might be a person who has more need than that. Should I go to visit that person? How would you ever know? How would you ever know the answer to that question? I think you have to trust the Spirit to lead your people into praying. Um, let me, let me change the subject and send us off in a new direction for a few minutes here, and then you can ask some more questions. Um, here's another distinction that has been helpful to get a handle on, on, the, on the picture of missions for our people. Um, I distinguish Paul-type missionaries from Timothy-type missionaries. That's my language for a common distinction of, of uh, frontier and regular, I guess, yeah. Um, but picture this. Romans 15, one of the most important mission chapters in the Bible, where Paul says, uh, I have fulfilled the gospel, the gospel from Jerusalem as far as Illyricum. I have no more room for work in this place. Now, do you know where those two places are? Jerusalem, you know where that is. Illyricum, that's, Al that's Albania. That's up there, just going to cross over from Greece to Italy. I finished. I finished. Now picture that. <gasps> what in the world does that mean? Thousands and thousands of unsaved people between, between Jerusalem and Illyricum. And Paul says, I have no more room for work in this place. I'm going to Spain. Pray for me. And when I get there, send me on my way. That's why he wrote Romans. What did he mean? I think he meant was, my job is done because 
my job is penetrating either the peoples or the urban centers or enough strategic peoples and locations so that now the forces of expansion out from those centers can evangelize the peoples, people in, in those areas. So he's gone. He's on his way to Spain and saying, I have no more room for work. God has called him to, to, to preach where the name of Christ has not been named. Timothy, where is he from? What city? Lystra. And where does he wind up ministering? Ephesus. So he's a missionary, right? That's a different culture. That's another city. And uh, big metropolitan area and little, I mean, I don't know how old he was when he got called, but he travels with Paul a while, gets all trained, and Paul plops him right into Ephesus and puts Titus in on Crete. And he leaves him there indefinitely as far as we know. And he takes off for Spain. And he doesn't guilt them and say, now you go to Britain or you go to Morocco. He just leaves them there. And so I'm not, I don't want to make the 90, what is it, 92% of the missionaries who are working right now in reached peoples feel bad. They're just, they're Timothy type missionaries. And uh, the desperate need today, however, is for Paul-type missionaries, far more desperate. And the Paul-type missionaries are those who are just got their antennas up for, for Ralph Winter's statistics, David Barrett's statistics, and Patrick John Stone's statistics about where are the peoples who don't have any church at all, don't have any opportunity for a Timothy type. And they go there. And so we're, I, I want to constantly say to our people, don't just consider crossing some space. That's what Timothy did, and it's okay. But consider the fact that if this job is going to be done, and Matthew 24, 14 is going to be fulfilled as a testimony to all the ethne, all the nations, then you've got to go, like Paul, to those. So I would say, in every local church, just tell your people this, in every local church and in every denomination, there has to be a group of people with the burden of the Paul-type vision. Not everybody, because Paul, Paul's a very freeing person. He wrote Romans to people that he intended not to be missionaries, because he told them in chapter 15, support me and send me. If he had meant for them to be missionaries, he couldn't have said that. So he just freed them up entirely to stay in Rome by saying, please speed me on my way in chapter 15. But he had to do it, and he always had a little band of people around him. Ralph Winter says the First Missionary Society, that little band of, of people. And so we need to say to our people, most of you need to stay here and be God-centered in your vocations. But a core of you need to become Timothy-type missionaries, and a core of you need to become Paul-type missionaries. And we must have in this church a burden for Paul-type missionaries. And it, it may be, depending on the size of your church, a very small group of people. And they'll probably be the most powerful prayers, I would guess, because they got the greatest opposition, I think. Question or response on, on anything along that line? Helping people distinguish between the Romans, Timothy, and Paul in those three layers of applying the gospel to this fallen, this fallen world. Um, Let me just 
take a few minutes to talk about Christian hedonism in its relationship. Um, David Livingston and Hudson Taylor, and I don't know whether they said it independence of one, one another or not, but both of them said at near the end of their lives, these men who had spent themselves, had been through tremendous crises, had lost loved ones, said at the end of their lives, I never made a sacrifice. As they poured their lives out and lost their, their wives and suffered from disease and and they came back, Livingston addressed the University of Cambridge, and he said to them, I never made a sacrifice. The quotes are in, in Desiring God. Now what in the world was that all about? I never made a sacrifice. Because most of the preaching to promote a missions mindset that I grew up under constantly said things like, don't do your own will, do God's will. And I would always sit there thinking, are those the only two options? Is it possible that I could be so changed that I might will God's will? That I might love God's will? That it might be my passion and joy, even in the face of the lion, to do God's will? That didn't, that didn't seem to ring. So I've devoted my energies for 20 years to develop this thing called Christian hedonism which basically says you better not be indifferent to whether you love to do God's will or not. You better really delight to do God's will. Behold, I delight to do thy will, O God. And that means in missions that um, the way you allure people out of security, out of comfort, out of the lake and the cabin is by holding out a superior pleasure. Them. A superior pleasure. Jesus said, I mean, uh, toward the end of the address to the Ephesians in Acts 20, it said, uh, remembering how the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. More happy, more satisfying, more producing of well-being. To give to spend, pour out your life, than to constantly be protecting it with more insurance policies and, and more cars and more boats and more houses and better neighborhoods and better, better, better and more. It's more blessed to pour it out and take risks. Now here's the, here's the, the, the word that shocks you in that verse. It's the word remembering. Because... There are a lot of people today, and this is, I'm just putting my Christian hedonism over against some of its detractors, who say, um, blessedness, happiness, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, a sense of well-being is a okay result of obedience, but you shouldn't be motivated by it and pursue it. Sound familiar? That comes from Immanuel Kant, not Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Jesus said, um, Paul said, remembering what the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now think what that means. He says, don't forget this. 
Don't put this out of your mind as though it would contaminate your motives. You see, this person over here would say, you shouldn't think much about how blessed it is to give because it'll contaminate your motives. You'll do something for the blessedness in it, and if you do something for the blessedness in it, you've ruined its moral virtue. So Jesus is against moral virtue then by saying, remember, remember, remember it's more blessed to give. Remember it's more blessed. So that when you get the phone call in the pastorate on your day off that somebody's about to commit suicide or that so-and-so's in the hospital or there's a crisis at church, you're supposed to, at that moment, fight the fight by remembering the word of the Lord. It is more blessed to give right now up your day off in order to meet that need. It is more blessed. And it's not an evil motive. It's not evil. It doesn't corrupt. Here's the, here's the proof of that from experience. You go to the hospital, all right, and you want the person you're visiting to feel loved. Loved. What makes them feel loved? A pastor who walks in, and they look up and they say, oh, Pastor John, you didn't have to do that. And you say, I know, but I'm a pastor, and it's my duty. <laughs> so I came in obedience to God. And <laughs> any, anything I can do for you? <laughs> they don't feel loved. What would you need to say for them to feel loved, more loved, when they say, oh, Pastor John, you didn't need to come? You say, well, no, I didn't need to come. I wanted to come. I wanted to come. Now, at that moment, when you say, I wanted to come, they could say, if they were Kantians, you're always doing what you want to do. <laughs> always trying to find your satisfaction. Why don't you do something out of duty for my sake once? Nobody in a thousand years would think of saying that. If you stand over their bed and say, I wanted to come, Nothing would make me happier this afternoon than standing by you to meet your need. Why do they feel loved when you say something so hedonistic? And the answer is that the only obedience that has virtue in it is joyful obedience. Loving to do God's will not just doing God's will. Loving to bless people, not just blessing people. How does, how does Micah 6.8 go? Hear, O man, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and not do mercy? Love mercy. Love it. Love it. Love it. And if you don't love it, get on your face until God zaps you with hedonism. Until you love to do righteousness. And it is your passion to do the will of God. Now that's what I sound to my people in regard to missions and everything. So that missions then shines not like it did for me when I was growing up as the alternative to my will. God's will. Instead, I'm saying you, you can't even, you can't even uh, begin to touch God's will unless your aim is to be happy in God and in His will. There's a very freeing 
thing that happens in missions when you know you're going for your own sake. Let me give you a close of the text. In, uh, it's found either in Matthew 19 or Mark 10. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And uh, the rich young ruler, you know, comes and he says, what must I do to enter eternal life? And Jesus said, uh, you know the commandments? Keep them. Uh, sell your goods. Follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he had riches and he went away sad. He wouldn't do it. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, meaning it's impossible. And, uh, and they just are taken back and say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So humanly, it's impossible for him to walk away from his riches. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. But with God, the heart can be changed, and he could go through the eye of the needle and lay down his riches and come to me. And Peter, oh, I wish I could see the video of this event. So I knew the tone of voice in Peter and Jesus. So I'm, I'm risking some tones of voice here that may not be there, but here's what I think happened. Peter says, oh, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What about us? And Jesus says, Peter, nobody has left houses or lands or brothers and sisters or mother or father which will not receive back mothers, lands, brothers, sisters in this life a hundredfold and in the age to come eternal life. Get off this self-pity thing. You see what he's saying? Jesus is saying, what do you mean you, what do you, what do you mean you sacrificed for me? What do you mean you gave up? You laid, down, you laid down your tin pan of mush and picked up a steak. Tell me about it. You know, you left, like C.S. Lewis says, you left your, your mud pies in the slums for a holiday at the sea. Whoa, big sacrifice. Poor Peter. That, I, I don't know what Jesus' tone of voice was. He was tougher than people think he was. But the point is, when you call a person to missions to leave mother and father and lands and sisters and brothers and maybe even children, when you send them away, heart-wrenching thing for missionaries, when you tell them that, you don't present that as some big, terrible sacrifice. You say you're going to get back a hundredfold and you are going to have eternal blessedness. So rejoice and be like Hudson Taylor and be like uh, David Livingston. And when you come to the end of your life, say, I never made a sacrifice, even though they lost everything for him, for him. One more verse and we're out of time. Um, I just read it in my devotions this morning. So it's on, it's on my front burner. I think the Lord does this sort of thing in devotions, you know. The kingdom of heaven is, is like a, a, a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered over and in his joy goes and does what? Sells everything he has to buy that field. 
That's the message of missions and the gospel, wherever you're going, in whatever context. I offer you a treasure of obedience. I offer you a treasure of forgiveness. I offer you a treasure of meaning. I offer you a treasure of eternal blessedness at the right hand of God. Now, go ahead. Make a sacrifice. And it says, in his joy, he sold everything. Everything. His wedding ring, off his finger, his house, his car, his excess clothing. And he had a staff and he sandals on his feet and clothes. And he followed for the joy of having that treasure. Preach that to your people. That being missionary minded and taking radical risks for God, whether it's home or overseas, is no sacrifice. It's finding the hidden treasure in the fullest experience of it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these brothers and sisters and how engaged they have been with me. And I pray now that you would apply this to their own lives and to the people they minister to and multiply joyful, white-hot disciples here and among all the unreached peoples through the influence of these people, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.